Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. We hope you poured yourself some bourbon, coffee, or whatever your favorite beverage is so we can pour over some of this evidence. We've got some learning to do tonight, and we are excited. It seems you all are excited as well, you little true crime nerds, because we've received some great new reviews. And Chris, go ahead and read your favorite review for this week. Great concept and unique approach. I binge watched all episodes and can't wait for more. My favorite duo is back, relaxed and ready to take us on a seamless journey using fantastic guest experts to educate the audience. We see another side of Chris and Fatima's personalities drawing you in. It's an outstanding balance to the terrible crimes discussed. Of course, care and compassion are always there. Science progresses, and the guest experts help to keep the audience on the cutting edge. You make me think. Bravo. And that was from Cosmic Solar. I want to say thank you for the outstanding review on the Crime of Cookie Juice website. We appreciate anyone that takes their time to give us a review. If you shoot us an email with your name and information, we'll send you out a small token of how much we appreciate the time it took to write this amazing review. Thank you again. Our fans are the best, and we have some exciting news today, right, Chris? That's right. We are excited because we have some Crime and Cookie Juice merch. Head on over to CrimeandCookieJuice.com and shop our store for some Crime and Cookie Juice swag. We've got mugs and cool hats so you can throw on over your bedhead and go somewhere in disguise like I usually do at school drop-off in the morning. We've got <laughs> shirts, we've got tote bags, and we'll get some whiskey glasses coming soon because that's, that's something right. we should have, but that's going to take a little more time. But head on over, buy some merch, buy some swag for your true crime lover for the holiday season. Everything that's should right. be delivered in time. Crime and Cookie um, Juice merch is the best Christmas gift ever. And tag us when you're sporting it. We want to see all of you in your CNCJ swag. All right, Chris. So let's jump in for tonight. We have, like usual, a lot of content. But let's start. What kind of cookie juice are you sipping on? So tonight is a no cookie juice night for Chris Anderson. I can't <laughs> believe it. It's a no cookie. There goes the podcast, guys. No, no. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. So I'm prepping for a, a procedure tomorrow and uh, I'm on a liquid ah, diet. So that's right. Can't consume any alcohol. But I am drinking my favorite bottled water and that's Dasani. <laughs> you could have faked it. You have so much bourbon and so much you know bourbon. the flavors. You know what's funny is speaking of Dasani, you and I both agreed that's our favorite water on the road. It's not just a road drink. It, this is real life. I love Dasani water. Love Dasani on no the road. No other water compares. So now we're a water podcast guest. <laughs> we're a water. Only for this episode. Y'all know how much I this love episode. my bourbon. So, you know, this won't carry over if for longer than after and my it's a standard procedure so it's nobody worry about procedure. our chris yes. anderson i'll be back on my instagram and facebook page babbling over words less like i normally do guys so don't worry about me i'm fine what are you drinking tonight she I, has a glass and she's she's shaking it up uh, what are you I, drinking okay so my husband actually bought me some cool little stone ice things to put in my bourbon. Just like you said, bourbon is sexy. I guess he wants me to be a real bourbon girl. There you go. Um, I mean, I'm not mad at it. I enjoy sipping it. And once a week, it is relaxing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I sip a little too much and I'm hurting the next day, but I do it for you guys. So tonight, I am drinking, you're going to be proud of me, a Basil Hayden. 
Basil Hayden. Yes. Basil Hayden is my favorite. Go ahead. Good. Tell, okay. Tell me about Because I need notes. you to do the review because when I drink it, first of all, I think I put too much water in this one. <laughs> but when I drink it, I'm getting more sweetness with this mm-hmm. one. Yeah. yeah. Definitely sweet and smooth. I'm getting a little citrus. Uh-huh. Um, so less spice, more citrus, but it's smooth. It's relaxing. Would that you is agree? it. That is absolutely it. Basil Hayden is one of those drinks. It never disappoints. Drink enough for both of us. That's what it's, you should do. <laughs> I definitely put more water because, man, I don't want to say what episode, but woo, I'm spilling fuzzy at the end. I was like, this is not professional. All right, Chris. So time to talk some true crime because we have a great expert tonight who's mm-hmm. waiting to come on and... We're really excited and honored to have our experts take the time out to educate us. I don't think people understand the cost that these people are when you have a case and you want to hire an expert. It is not cheap. And they're bringing years of insight and research into their expertise, into their opinion. And this is what the jury relies upon a lot. They're very important. So I always just feel privileged to have them to be able to speak with them. So tonight we have a great one. We're going to bring him in soon. Our topic for the night is false confessions. Chris, have you ever been in an argument with your wife and she insists you did something or said something and you know damn well you did not? And for the first hour, maybe first two hours, you're standing your ground, denying the allegation, thinking she's crazy and I'm not going to give in. But then after a night of arguing, and then maybe the next morning you get up and you're still arguing, you just feel defeated. So you just give in and apologize, admitting guilt, so the whole thing can be over with. You ever been in that situation? No, because I'm never wrong. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm one of those guys that I don't like to argue, and I will apologize. Even if I think that I'm in the wrong, I'll apologize and try to move on past the argument. Every personality is different, but you're definitely the kind of person that's more susceptible to feeling overwhelmed and wanting just to please and wanting something to be over so that you no longer have to be uncomfortable. So many of us just can't imagine admitting we did something wrong, especially if it's a heinous crime, if we are innocent, Mm -hmm. right? That just blows people's minds. And so I think for a jury, especially when you're hearing that someone gave a confession, immediately you're going to think, who would do such a thing? And that automatically works against the person regardless of innocence or guilt. So this happens and it is truly one of the greatest tragedies in the criminal justice system. That was a light scenario I gave you, but imagine someone you know has been murdered. You didn't do it, so you agree to go to the police department to be interviewed and suddenly you realize you're the prime suspect. You're denying all involvement, asking to make a phone call, you're tired, you're hungry, you're cold, and all the while, law enforcement is saying, we know you did it, we have the evidence, you're on tape. You know all of this is not true, but they're saying it. Why would they say it if it wasn't true? And this goes on for 10, 15 hours. You just want to go home. You want it to stop. They believe you did it, and they are saying they have the evidence. So, you admit partially, perhaps, hoping that somehow the truth will come out, because how could it not? Now, these are just a few of the scenarios of people who have been wrongly convicted of false confessions. So, Chris, let's talk some stats, because I think people hear this and they don't necessarily believe it. 
and statistics don't lie. The Innocence Project, they have put out some studies on this, and they show that throughout the years, 375 exonerations in the USA, that of those 375, about 30% involve false confessions. That means one in three people who have been proven innocent by DNA falsely confessed. We've talked about this number. It's mm-hmm. proven innocent by DNA. Now, if approximately, what, 27% of the total number of exoneration cases involved a false confession, and if 10% of the 2 million men and women imprisoned in the United States are innocent, well, then we can estimate that 50,000 of those convictions involved false confessions. 50,000. That number you can't even grasp. Mm-hmm. How do you feel hearing these numbers? Is it something you ever thought of when you were a homicide detective? Most homicide investigators are dealing with their own personal cases and making sure that they have the correct people in their personal cases. I don't think that you really get an idea of the scope of how widely this could spread until you've listened to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. So I've been a part of another show like Reasonable Doubt. So no, I I never thought about it as a a homicide investigator, unfortunately. Did you ever hear about it when you were on the force? Yeah, when I was going through training, we talked a lot about wrongful convictions and talked a lot about false confessions. But I do remember a couple of the trainers that we had and we talked about some of the, the wrongful convictions and wrongful confessions and how to make sure that your investigations won't fall prey to even an accusation of being a wrongful conviction. They, they would always talk about corroborating evidence and harp on, you know, make sure that you listen to what your defendant or your suspect is saying in the case so that you can make sure that what he's saying is corroborated by the physical evidence you have on the crime scene. So there was training about it. Yes, there was training on it. Was it talked about as much as it probably should? No, it was not. But yeah, they talked about it. Now, studies have shown that juries convict in up to 81% of the cases of those that are later proven to be false confessions. That number doesn't surprise me because once again, I think it's difficult for people to fathom that somebody would say they committed a heinous crime when they didn't. But what that says is if you do fall victim to a false confession, you're 81% likely to be convicted, probably regardless of whether you have an expert talking about the confession or not. But that's something we can also talk to our expert more about. One thing people can't imagine is how could it be a false confession if they had information about the crime scene that nobody else knew? But they forget that there's a way during an interrogation that oftentimes law enforcement, if you're not properly trained or you're not being careful, can release information and you are then contaminating this interrogation because you are divulging information that only the perpetrator would really know. So it does happen in these cases. Let me give you the number though. One study showed 94% of false confessions were contaminated by allegedly inside information. Well, you can make that accusation in any scenario. Anybody that's making that argument, they can make this scenario fit You can say that this officer hadn't had enough training. You can say that this officer said something that could be construed as him giving information. You know, I just don't know. Oh, we're getting some pushback here on the note. No, it it is what it is. People will always say that law enforcement did this wrong or law enforcement did that wrong. Number one, that should be more training that is heavily involved in 
what has occurred during these wrongful convictions. And I also think that we should be able to, instead of allowing people to not have the finances in order to bring in an expert like an Alan Hirsch, I think that you, we should have more experts that can come in and talk about what they see in every case. And, I, and if the state needs to pay for it, then the state needs to pay for it. But I think that if there's an accusation or a false confession, we should be able to have an expert come in and talk about what they see. I absolutely agree with that because if that's the allegation, then we want to be able to make sure that it's balanced in court and that the mm -hmm. jury knows that. But absolutely. what I'm talking about is before it even reaches that accusation. So out of these false confessions that are proven false confessions because of DNA exoneration, those people, those confessions, majority, 94% had inside information. So what is that saying? I'm not blaming law enforcement, but the reality is there's going to be contamination by law enforcement that maybe it's inadvertent. Maybe you don't even realize you said, what object did you hit her with? And that tells somebody, mm, let me guess a bat or something. You're just, you're guessing. And those things happen because you're fishing for information, but in fishing for information, you may divulge something you don't mean to, but that's why you have to be very careful in these situations. And there again, anybody can make the accusation that a person divulged information that they shouldn't have. They, they've made those accusations about a lot of law enforcement officers. And I think that's just one of the techniques that we use in law enforcement in order to get a person to confess. It's like giving them an out. What? Divulging information? Not necessarily divulging information. Asking them, did you hit her with this? Or giving them options. Sometimes it's easier for a person to say yes or no. But wouldn't you think you have limited options there if you're saying she hit you with something? It's going to be a hard mm -hmm. object, right? Like maybe could, it could uh, be a could lot be of a things, stick, but if you're that in the house. It could be a baseball right. bat, could be a hammer, could be anything. But yeah. if this person has that intricate knowledge, those are the ones that are more believable. And it's up to the law enforcement officer or that investigator to extract that information without divulging too much information. Right. And I imagine it could be hard. Definitely. It is. It's very hard. And we know that innocent people in this situation, they end up confessing because they just want to escape the stress of that situation. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, multiple, multiple hours of being told something that is stressful. But one study showed that most of these false confessions come after an average of 16.3 hours of questioning. Gosh, think about it. Some people can't even sit through an hour lecture class, right? Imagine someone's just coming at you that whole time. Right. And you're just tired. I didn't realize that it wasn't until 1936 that the Supreme Court declared physical coercion unconstitutional in interrogations. Right. Now, that's extreme, right? We know that you can't, you shouldn't go beating people up in interrogation. Does it happen? Of course, we've heard about it. We know about Chicago, New York departments that, that they utilize these tactics to get people to confess. To get and those accusations to... were made way after 1936, though. Yeah, absolutely. So you just because the law passed didn't mean it stopped. The most disturbing thing I think today that is really important for us to understand that I don't think we do in the United States, we just think our system is perfect and we're the most progressive, blah, blah, blah. But one thing that's really important for people to know is that out of our entire country, only 30 states require the recording of interrogations. Mm -hmm. Some only record confessions. And you and I talked about this last time. That's a problem, right? You're turning on the recorder when they're willing to confess. We don't know what was promised, what was threatened, what happened before that recording was turned on. So that's scary. And that's one thing that I have always spoken out against. I'm a huge advocate for making sure that you record every 
portion of your interrogation or your interview or your witnesses. I'm a huge proponent of it because mm -hmm. to stop accusations, just as that, just what you say, you never know what's been said, or it opens yourself and your investigation up to so much scrutiny when you don't record the entire interrogation or the entire interview. Just don't even put yourself or your victim's families in that situation. Mm -hmm. Record the entire interrogation, do everything that you're supposed to do according to the law, and then you won't have to worry about the accusations on the back end and mm -hmm. re-victimizing your victim's families. Absolutely. That's huge because mm -hmm. they're looking for justice and you're giving them that hope and then suddenly that hope is taken away and they're yeah. re-traumatized. Crushed by your actions that you mm -hmm. could have stopped from happening if you hit the record button as soon as that, right. that person walked into that room. I'm going to look up what states don't require because that'll be interesting. So I'll, yeah. I may have to say that on another podcast because there's plenty of states that still don't require the recording of them. Possibly the most dangerous tool, and we've talked about this, is and most countries do not allow this. In the United States, a detective can legally lie to a suspect. Mm -hmm. They can say, we have your fingerprint. We have your DNA. We have you on video. They can even say, and in some cases, the officers have said, I can't lie to you about the evidence. And then they lied about the evidence, right? So if you don't know the law, which many folks don't, and you're sitting in there and the officer's telling you this, you're like, but that's impossible. And they say, I can't lie about this. Yeah. They're lying. If that's not going to make you feel defeated, if that's not going to make you feel like no matter what I say, I'm never getting out of here, I don't know what will. You know, look, I Did you am... ever do that? Did I ever lie to a defendant? Yeah, I've told a defendant. A, a, no, not a that. Incorrect. I know you're going to lie, but did you ever say, I can't lie to you about the evidence? This is what I found out. I've learned throughout my years of investigating cases, the more I lied, the worse that my interrogations went. The, the ones where I, I was completely honest, those were the ones that always got me a confession. You know, so I learned as an investigator, to be honest. I can be honest with you, even though you're lying to me, I'm going to be honest with you because 90% of the time when I'm bringing you into that interrogation room, it's really not to get a confession. I'm bringing in there to give you the opportunity to tell me your portion of the story, your side of what happened. And I, because I already have the probable cause that I need to put you in jail and probably the same evidence I needed to convict you. But it's always worked out better for me when I was honest with the defendants in my cases. I love that. I'm glad. So popular cases that people believe are false confession cases, and if you want to look them up, one is the John Galvin case and the Innocence Project did assist in exonerating him. And that was an arson case where arson experts proved it actually wasn't an arson. It was an accidental fire, but yet he confessed to that and did years and years. And so he's now free, thankfully. People think that the Brendan Dacey case, who's Stephen Avery's nephew in Making a Murderer, they think that's a possible false confession. Melissa Lucio, her execution was stayed recently, just days before it was scheduled. And she's the mom accused of beating her own daughter. That's another interesting case to look into. And of course, we believe it's possible in the Casey Grandin case that was covered on Reasonable Doubt, where a young man is accused of killing his girlfriend. We believe that that was a possible false confession. And we're going to talk about that case a little more closely, too, in the coming months. We're going to get into that. All of these cases have signs of possible confessions, false confessions. They aren't necessarily extreme tactics that one would expect, such as not giving somebody food or water and making it cold and, and yelling at them the whole time and spitting in their face. It's not, they don't necessarily look like that. These confessions, they do last long hours through the night. 
where law enforcement actually acts more like a friend to the suspect. They manipulate them. They minimize the crime. And they just don't take, I didn't do it, for an answer. And this is a technique that our expert can speak more about in a minute. But before getting into that, I want him to start and tell us about his thoughts on the Karina Vetrano case. So we talked about this case a few weeks ago. And what we know is that Chanel Lewis was arrested for the murder of jogger Karina Vetrano in New York City. Chanel allegedly confessed to the murder, saying he had no plan to kill anyone. He was just frustrated and mad because his neighbors were playing loud music, so he went for a walk. He says that he saw Karina running. He just pulled her into the bushes. He said he hit her about five times. She landed face down in a puddle, and that's how he left her. But there's claims that his version of events don't quite match the crime scene. Karina was sexually assaulted, strangled to death, and left in the bushes. Lewis says he didn't sexually assault her. But more importantly, he says he left her to drown in a puddle of water, but she was found in a dry area of the bushes, no water around her face. So we also know that Chanel Lewis is 22 years old. He graduated from a high school for individuals with learning disabilities. And before the recordings of his confession started that night, he had already been held by detectives for almost 12 hours. And it was also his first night away from home. So I'd like to get our experts' thoughts on this case because it is still active and people are still proclaiming that he's innocent and that it was a false confession. Alan Hirsch is a false confessions expert. He's an attorney, a professor, a writer, and a trial consultant who has spent three decades doing work related to the justice system. Much of the work has involved false confessions and criminal interrogations. Studying this subject, writing about it, starting and operating the first website devoted to it, and serving as an expert, consultant, and witness. I'd like to welcome into the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast, Mr. Alan Hirsch. Welcome, Professor Hirsch. We're so excited to have you on. It's really my pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you, guys. So let's jump right in, Alan. Uh, wait a minute. Alan, are, are, are you drinking with a uh, Fatima tonight? No, well, my mug of coffee is behind me. There you <laughs> go. Okay, so. Coffee? What time is it over there? That's my drug of choice. I can have coffee any time of day, and I'm sorry to say not a bourbon guy. What is your beverage of choice oh, other God, than coffee? You're, you're really going to out me as a teetotaler. I really don't drink alcohol, not for any great reason, no religious or moral objections. Law school, which was a long time ago, was the last time I found myself drinking. And I don't know. It's not the real story behind it. That's just not my preference. Well, we're just going to assume you partied hard enough for all the decades. Decades to come. <laughs> Not sure that's true. It might just be oh. that I'm a boring fellow. Although I've had friends say that I'm just so naturally excitable. I ha I wake up with a buzz. I don't need to drink to get it. We got a lot of fans that drink <laughs> just coffee. We could have done a whole coffee and, right. and crime. I'm that's sure right. that's already taken though. It is. Crime and coffee is, is <laughs> way out coffee. there. I had a case of a, a guy in Colorado who confessed falsely to 18 crimes, homicides. Really, and his motive was whenever he would call in the authorities and say, I got another case. I think I'm the guy you're looking for. And they'd bring him out and he'd get coffee and cigarettes. Stop. And that's seriously. Was he homeless? No, he was in prison. Oh, he was. <laughs> because he really did commit one homicide. There were a couple where I think when it, we're still not sure. And there were 15 where, which were proven demonstrably false. And you see the videos, you read the transcripts, you could just see he's getting off on the coffee each time. And I believe, I'm virtually certain that was his motive. Wow. 
coffee. He did it for the coffee. He did it for the coffee and the cigarettes. Yeah. Hey, what wouldn't you do for coffee though, right? Let me tell you. Oh man, I feel so old when I go to buy coffee and they tell me that's going to be six. I'm like, Lord, what did I buy? And Chris's macchiato whipped cream thing. Hey, watch it. You're talking about how most people think they couldn't do it. They would never confess to a crime they didn't commit. What I tell people when I try to convince them that they too could succumb under the right circumstances is just try to remember those times where you would do anything to get to sleep. Wouldn't you tell someone what they wanted to hear? If you just were desperate to be left alone, so you go back to sleep after your one o'clock woke you up three hours too early or whatever. Mm-hmm. I make all kinds of promises to my toddler just to get some sleep. You exactly. want to go to Disneyland tomorrow? <laughs> Going to Disney. You want ice cream for breakfast? You're having ice cream. I just want some sleep. Yeah. Exactly. It's no joke. Sleep deprivation and not to make light of it, but that's a real thing. Yes, it and... is. And that's not funny. I use that as a way of getting people to see that you really can confess falsely. And sometimes the sleep deprivation works when people can picture that. Mm-hmm. They realize, well, yeah, there are sometimes people will say anything to get what they need. How did you end up devoting basically now your life to this kind of work? When I was clerking for a judge in the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit way back, we had a confession case that went up to the Supreme Court, back down to our court, and it was just fascinating. We heard the interrogation. It was audio recorded, even though this was way back when, before that was commonplace. Mm. And what the cops did to this guy, it was a full court press. And that spurred a lifelong interest in me in the subject of interrogations and confessions and what the police are allowed to do. You pointed out they're allowed to lie and so forth. And then I moved to Williamstown, a college town out in 2001. And serendipitously, my next door neighbor was Saul Casson, the world's leading authority on false confessions. There were also some high profile cases that got my attention as they did many other people. The Central Park jogger case, there were multiple false confessions. The West Memphis Three, a mm-hmm. great trilogy on HBO. Yeah. So all of that was fueling my interest. And because I love to write and research, I found myself writing and researching on the subject. And now that I've been at this some 15 years or so, I've been involved in hundreds of cases. And Saul and I always say, you can't make this stuff up. Though we don't always say the word stuff. I don't know. I don't think we can state the number with remote precision, Mm -hmm. but this is how I people's attention on this subject is I tell them what is undoubtedly true and mind boggling, which is the prisons are full of innocent people, a great many of whom are there because they said they did it, even though they didn't. And it's not their fault. I don't want to blame the victim. Most of the time, it is because they are subject to an interrogate, a kind of interrogation that is terrific at breaking people down, but unfortunately breaks down innocent people as well as guilty. So if you had to say that there is one thing that law enforcement does to elicit a false confession, what would it be? It would be the method of interrogation that combines two crucial steps. Mm-hmm. One is communicating to the suspect that he is guilty, they know he's guilty, and nothing he says will convince them otherwise. And that is often accompanied by false claims to have evidence that they (laughs) don't have. And the other is to minimize the crime. So the confrontation frightens the suspect. 
They begin to despair of ever establishing their innocence. And then they communicate, but if you confess, that's the way out. It won't be that bad. And that is communicated sometimes explicitly and sometimes through various more subtle minimization techniques, telling the suspect that he's not the real culprit. It's not his fault. He was provoked by the victim. He was influenced by alcohol. The crime isn't that bad. It's very understandable. It's not like he killed anyone. On and on, maybe he needs help more than he needs punishment. It will go better if he confesses. I've just reeled off about six minimization tactics. There are hundreds. What unites them is the communication to the suspect that it won't be that bad if you confess. That's your best way out and your only way out. And if you are led to believe that, you are likely to confess. And people say, how can anyone reach that conclusion that it's the best or the only way out? So to go back to your question, Chris, it's the interrogation tactics. It's the way police are trained to interrogate suspects. If I had one thing I could do to push a button that would reduce the number of false confessions, it would be to change the way police are retained. And if you gave me two, I would say record all their interrogation, all interrogations. As you pointed out, that's done in a little more than half the states. Mm -hmm. I'd want them all to do it. And as Chris said, all of it, not mm -hmm. some of it. You need the whole interrogation. I can't tell you how many cases I've seen where the cops turned on the reporter when the suspect was ready to confess. So the jury will never see what led up to that point. And I'm curious to know, I know you you testified all across the country and have been doing so for many years. Are most of the cases that you're seeing these false confessions fall into older cases, maybe in the 90s, or are you seeing it more so now? They are still staggeringly Stead. widespread. Now, okay. I, what, it is true the trajectory is positive when it comes to recording of confessions. And that helps. I think officers are going to behave themselves a little better when they know that the interrogation will be seen. And the judge and jury seeing what happened can help them understand that the person might be innocent and yet may have confessed. But recording is not a panacea. Because to some extent, seeing is believing. And I look at an interrogation, and just because I've been doing this for 20 years, I can tell you there is red flag A, B, C, and D, but a lay person looks at it and they see someone without a gun to their head, without a fist in their face, without anyone even screaming at them. They see that person say, yeah, I committed the murder and here's how I did it. And it's very hard for them to imagine that what they're hearing is false. Some of these techniques and tactics, it seems to be coming out more and more. And you're obviously testifying about them and educating people. Are any police departments taking action? Are any of these techniques being banned? No. The read technique, which is the main technique we're talking about, even though it doesn't always go by that name, is legal in all 50 states, as far as I know. One component often used by interrogators trained in read, lying about evidence, has been given its approval by the United States Supreme Court. So police departments are still using, are still training on the read technique. Absolutely. So here is what I've learned about the read technique, and I've studied this also. A lot of law enforcement agencies are no longer sending their officers to read conducted training because of the the backlash. And you'll see that a lot, but is it still legal? Do a lot of people still use it? Yeah. And you'll see 
certain areas of the read technique used in a lot of the interrogations, even some of those departments that don't no longer train on the read technique, you'll still see certain aspects of the read technique used. But a lot of law enforcement agencies have moved away from the read training. A competitor of reads, Wicklander and Zalowski, another leading trainer of interrogators, has renounced read. They mm -hmm. taught their version of it, and now they just won't do it anymore because they recognize that it contributes to false confessions. I think, Chris, we're still at the point that even if people are uh, cops are not formally trained in read, it's part of the police culture. They're watching older interrogators. That's how they learn. And I think this idea is in the air, that this is mm -hmm. what you do. You confront the suspect with, you're guilty, we know you're guilty, and you minimize. And I see this all the time. Prosecutors will say to me, are you aware that the policeman in this case who interrogated the defendant was not trained in read? And my answer is, I don't care. I see what they do. And if they're using the tactics that break down innocent people, that's true, whether they call it read, whether they were formally trained in read, or they picked it up some other way. Talking about the Central Park Five, you referenced that's probably one of the most famous cases of wrongful conviction. And there it was dealing with minors, which we've had a couple of episodes of Reasonable Doubt. We had one in particular where the defendant, he is now free but he was part of a group of minors who were interrogated without any legal guardians, any attorneys. And I got a chance to speak with them one-on-one -on -one and they claimed they gave false confessions. Central Park Five, that's a New York case. And something I keep coming across in my research is that New York leads out of all of the states with wrongful convictions. What are your thoughts on that? And is that yeah. something that you're aware of? It's interesting. I have had any number of cases of New York wrongful convictions in the 1980s or 90s. 20 years later, these people are exonerated and they're trying to get compensation or they're suing civilly or they're trying to get their convictions overturned when they're fairly obviously innocent. And I used to say that there's a common element in a lot of these cases, and that is that these people were convicted of being Black and in the wrong place at the wrong time, because there are just so many cases that fall into that category. But it wasn't, it's not just the 1970s and 80s. That is the Central Park jogging case. To some extent, that's exactly what it was about. You round up the nearest people who look like they might be criminals and you beat them down and get confessions of, from them. And that may be what happened in the Chanel Lewis case. It does seem as if they cast a very broad net in part based on some DNA phenotyping, which I gather is unreliable. And they were looking for some young black men because that sort of fit some profile or other. And that may be the, what Chanel Lewis got caught up in. Anything else about just what you know about his confession, his age, or yeah. anything else that concerns you? Well, there, there are a number of red flags. He was young. He has had cognitive deficiencies. And people in that category are overrepresented in the population of false confessions. As you pointed out, he seems to have gotten the cause of death wrong. That is not a minor thing to get wrong. And so often, as you guys pointed out, prosecutors say, this confession must be true. It got details right. And that's wrong. As you pointed out, many false confessions get details right. But it's ironic how often prosecutors will charge ahead and prosecute a case when the confession gets details wrong. 
I actually have a, a pretty high level of confidence that there will be justice in the Chanel Lewis case. But how many criminal defendants don't get that kind of representation? Going back to the victim's family being re-victimized, this case is so horrific. And what the family has gone through, the father finding this young woman's body and just finally feeling like they can close this chapter of their life. I've personally, I've lost people. I've lost two brothers. Thankfully, it was not murder, but I can only imagine these families, when you're going through the process and trying to grieve, you can't do that when you have to sit through trials. And this family sat through two trials and finally they got this conviction and they're hoping to close this chapter and finally grieve and move on with their life. And everyone is shouting, not everyone, but obviously people who believe he's innocent are shouting, hey, this is a wrongful conviction. That's really hard on them. But then you realize when you have a false confession, wrongful conviction, then the real perpetrator is out there oftentimes committing more crimes. And So we have more victims, and then we have a family that did not receive justice, and now they have to go through it all over again. That is disturbing. So everyone involved is wrong. So so true. There are many collateral costs to false confessions, and you've put your finger on an enormous one, which is the real culprit remains at large, and the victim's families don't get closure if the injustice is later undone. I hate to say it, those are cases which we think of as happy endings, and maybe the ending is happy. But when someone has spent 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison for something they didn't do, it really is hard to imagine anything worse. The introduction of conviction integrity units to police departments and to prosecutors' offices has been a great thing. I've been a cop for most of my life. I started off when I was 20 years old. I'm almost 50 years old now. And I do believe that there are some things that we can change, some things that we can do different in order to strengthen our criminal justice system. One thing is to, when we see something that's wrong, we've got to say something about it. And so that one thing that I've noticed about New York, and that's a part of the culture within that police department. So the addition of a conviction integrity unit is, is it's a great thing. It's a start, but it's only a start because there's a, there is a complete culture shift that needs to happen in order to correct some of the wrongs that have happened within that departments. Yeah, that is 100% I agree. And I'd go even further, even when those units work optimally, they're still reversing convictions that have already happened. Mm-hmm. And you've already had a great deal of suffering, possibly an, an unsolved crime. So, yeah, absolutely. There's no panacea, but all of these reforms are a step in the right direction. We like to think that this podcast, because it reaches an audience of just everyday citizens, that's exactly who's chosen to be on a jury. What would you say these people could look for when they hear that it's a false confession? Is there cues or signs when they're watching a video? of things that they should consider. As far as our jurors can educate themselves, I would say the single most important thing is look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. Don't take a confession to be proof of guilt. Take it to be one piece of evidence and match it up against the other evidence. And when you see it doesn't fit with the other evidence, when the confession gets important things wrong, that is such a red flag. 
But then they also, the other side of that coin is to recognize that even when the confession gets things right, uh, that happens in most cases of false confessions, the confession gets things right. And so you have to ask yourself, is there a way this suspect could have had information given to him? So I think it's just really important for jurors to understand that simply because someone has confessed doesn't mean he's guilty. There is this very real and widespread phenomenon of false confessions, and you better find some corroboration of a confession or you've got no business finding someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Alan, this has been so enlightening and interesting for us. So we thank you for spending your evening with us and explaining a lot of this. Totally my pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you again for joining us for another interesting topic on the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Join us next week as we discuss flaws in the eyewitness testimony. Thanks again, guys. Have a good night. Good night, folks.